Well, friends, I couldn't think of a better segue into this morning's sermon than what we just prayed there a second ago. We all collectively just confessed that the kingdom belongs to Christ. We said, thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Most assuredly, it is Christ's. And so this morning's message is entitled, Christ the King. Christ the King. And I think it's fitting for us to recognize the kingship of Christ as we see it here in our passage this morning from Psalm chapter 2. Psalm 2. And so I'd like to invite you to turn there with me now at this time to Psalm chapter 2 as we will plan to look over this in its entirety. But as you're turning there, I want to make a couple brief notes before we dive into the text for this morning. Because I think it's proper that we recognize that right now, this Sunday, we find ourselves in what I want to call the in-between. See, last Sunday, we, of course, observed Easter Sunday, the resurrection of Christ from the dead, king over all the earth, the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth. And next Sunday, I'm super excited because for months we've been planning to launch a new long series going through the book of Acts, following the early church as they submitted to Christ as king, they saw him as Lord and they therefore responded accordingly throughout the entirety of the book of Acts. And so the question before us is this, you know, why not jump right into the book of Acts this morning? Uh, Well, easy answer, I didn't prepare a sermon on the book of Acts, so it'd be a little awkward if I tried to do one ad hoc. (laughs) But furthermore, I think that Psalm 2 provides the perfect bridge between the resurrection that we just read of last Sunday and also the Acts of the Apostles throughout the book of Acts that we are about to jump into next Sunday. Psalm 2 is that perfect bridge between the two because everything about Psalm 2 just speaks of the glory of Christ who was crucified and raised. Christ, the anointed one, who is the very son of God and the one whom all homage is due. See, last week we saw in John chapter 20 a band of anything but bold disciples hunkering down in the upper room. We saw them cowering for fear because they thought that Christ was still dead. And they didn't yet understand that he would be raised from the dead bodily. But as he did on that third day, which we just observed last week, and as he began to appear to his disciples, to the 11 at first, and then also to over 500 other eyewitnesses, he so proved to them beyond a shadow of a doubt that he is, in fact, Lord of all lords and King of all kings. And in appearing before them, he commissioned them with all authority, with the following words that we know from Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20, that famous passage that we know as the Great Commission which really paves the way for our message this morning on Psalm 2. So as a way of a reminder, what does Matthew 20, 18, 18 through 20 say? It says this. These are Jesus' words. All authority in heaven 
and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe everything that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. See, this authority which Christ held and forever now does hold as the resurrected Lord of life, the firstborn from the dead, is an authority in which he carries two kinds of staffs, if you will, in his hand. Both a kingly rod, a rod of iron, which we will see here in Psalm 2, but also a shepherd's staff. A rod to rule the nations, but also a shepherd's staff to pasture his people. So the question before us then is this, what does Psalm 2 in particular say of Christ our King? Well, let's go ahead and open up our copies of God's Word to Psalm chapter 2. And let's read the following of Jesus Christ our King. Psalm 2 says this, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together <clears throat> against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. But note his response. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell the decree, the Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and you shall dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear, and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled, but, and here's the gospel here, blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is the very word of God that is given to us in love, forever faithful and true, and none of his words will ever return void. Uh, knowing these things, let's come before him in prayer. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you, again, are the author of life, the giver of life, and therefore the world praises you. We ask, Lord Jesus, as we open your word, that you would remind us of your goodness and your truth, that you would reveal yourself to be the one who is over all. And accordingly so, Lord, I ask that as I deliver your word to your people, that you, O oh Christ, would be speaking and shepherding your people by your spirit. That I, as the messenger, would get out of the way and that you yourself would be seen as the one who is worthy of all praise and adoration. For we are gathered for you, O oh Christ, our shepherd and our king. And so we ask for you to bless this time, encourage our hearts, show us your glory, as you will, O oh Lord, and do this for your namesake. In your name we pray, amen.
Well, friends, as we were just reading through Psalm chapter 2, somewhat of a longer psalm, I have a quick question for you. How many voices did you happen to hear while we were reading through Psalm 2? How many people were speaking? If you were to look over this again, you might count up uh, one, two, three, four different voices that were going on here. And each of these voices seem to be separated by three verses apiece. The first voice that we see very clearly is the voice of the kings and the rulers of the earth. Those who say, let us burst their bonds from us. We don't like the rule of God over us. The voice of these rulers of the earth rising up against the God of heaven. But then God the Father in verses uh, four through six answers them and he speaks responsively there to them. Following then in verses seven through nine, the Son of God tells and testifies of what the Father said to him, something that was set in stone before the foundation of the earth. And finally then, the narrator picks up on a powerful point of application there in verses 10 through 12. So four distinct voices is what we hear here. Um, But to spare us all, I don't have, don't worry, a four-point message for you. Uh, Rather, I want to go ahead and distill it and condense it down to only two key points from Psalm 2. (laughs) Two key points. The first takeaway would be this, that we ought to recognize the king. And we see this in verses 1 through 6. And then there in verses 7 through 12, we see this other second takeaway, the takeaway to take refuge in the king. So to recognize the king and to take refuge in the king. Now to better understand the function of Psalm 2, I think it's super helpful to understand this psalm as being very much like that of a swinging door, a door that swings wide open, a door that provides entry into something. If you can imagine walking into a giant master bedroom or a grand lobby at a fancy hotel, you probably have seen before uh, two large doors that open up and they showcase the grandiose nature of what the person who is walking in is about to behold. It gives them a foretaste of what they are about to see as they venture throughout the entirety of the building. Well, in the same way, uh, both Psalms 1 and Psalm 2 operate as the two giant doors of the entirety of the Psalms, displaying the glory of Christ, the King of glory. See, if you look back at the beginning of Psalm 1, which is probably there in front of you as well, you'll notice in Psalm 1 this famous truth that many of us maybe even know by heart. Psalm 1, verse 1, that starts off the entirety of the psalm saying, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. There is both a sense of blessing and cursing right there. And by the tail end of uh, Psalm 2, verse 12, the other side of this door, so to speak, the hinge of it, In verse 12, it says the following. So kiss the son. In other words, pay homage to him. Be reconciled to the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled, but blessed are all who take refuge in him. Do you recognize the juxtaposition here? 
See, in Psalm 1 and 2, both of these psalms pronounce over God's people the proper way of entry into beholding the splendor and the glory of God as is due him. Now, Psalm 1 is more so focused upon the individual believer, their relationship to God and with other people as well. But Psalm 2 is focused more in a communal sense, the covenant community of God, those who belong to him, all of those who take refuge in Christ. And so we see this juxtaposition going on right from the get-go between those who belong to God and those who do not, those who are blessed or literally happy, as that word blessed means, and those who are under God's anger due to their sin. This juxtaposition of those who take the counsel of the wicked versus those who take refuge in Christ. Christ, who is the only source of true delight and all wisdom. And so from the start, Psalm 2 announces over us that there are only really two ways of living. We will either live in submission to Christ as king and recognize his lordship over all things, or we will live in rebellion against the king. There is no in-between. There is no other third way. Christ is Lord, and so we will either live in accordance with his rule, the rule of faith, or we will choose to live a life of sinful disposition against the face of God. But regardless of the stance before God that we live in, either as believers or not, we live before the face of God, before him. God himself is, in fact, king over all the earth. Whether the people of the earth admit it or not. And so this is what this psalm drives home, that Christ is king. See, in essence, the most divisive thing you could ever tell somebody, not only in today's society, but for thousands of years prior as this psalm was being written, the most divisive thing you could ever say to anyone is, Christ is Lord. For either upon hearing that, they will embrace that truth with affection and love, or they will push it away and irk back and become offended by such a thought that Christ is Lord. And so this either-or response is nothing new to us. For ever since the fall of man, the sinful disposition of our hearts, known as the human condition, has been to oppose God and his ways. So Psalm 2, like Psalm 1 before it, emphasize the inherent anger of not just one person, but rather the collective people here in Psalm 2. Even their rulers of the earth over them and the kings that they have placed over them, their disposition against God. And so we see here this spirit of malice and hostility and rage before the Lord and against his anointed one, namely Christ Jesus, the Prince of Peace. But we also see here in verses two through three the inherent folly and foolishness of sin here. 
Look again with me, if you will, upon verses two through three. It says this, the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers of the earth take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. But friends, do you see the irony here going on? You know, let us burst these bonds apart. The irony is that they cannot do that in the first place, even though they want to. See, sin itself makes a fool of us all. Uh, To illustrate this point, uh, this point from Psalm 2 in a different way, it would be like a complete stranger coming up to the front door of your house, knocking loudly and telling you, hey, you need to get out of here. This house doesn't belong to you anymore. It belongs to me. In fact, I'm actually very offended that you would continue to live here even though I just happen to take it from you. (laughs) See, in the same way, that is what our sinful rebellion is like before God. It is as if we go up to him and say, God, I know you've created me. I know you've made me for your glory and to enjoy you, but I would rather have things my way. I'm going to go ahead and take this over and you need to get out of here. It's foolishness. It's folly. And honestly, it's quite laughable. (laughs) It, It is ridiculous to think about. And yet in light of this, sin is so much deeper than just a rebellion. It honestly hurts and harms those who operate in such a light. Hence why we need, in our own community of Culpeper and beyond, to be about the upholding of the law of God. When the evilness of mankind runs amok, we ourselves will reap the benefits, or really the ill benefits, of what happens. And so we must seek to uphold truth and justice and righteousness. But notice here in Psalm 2, God's heavenly response to these rebellious earthly kings. What does it say here? In verse 4, it says, He who sits in the heavens laughs. He holds them in derision. Their folly, in essence, is like a joke to him. It's again like that person who knocks at the door saying, Let me in, this belongs to me now. You wouldn't help but just laugh at the person because it doesn't belong to them. In the same way, we bring folly and mockery upon ourselves when we operate in that way. But rebellion against God himself is no small matter. It is worthy of correction that brings men back to their senses. And yet, the beauty and the grace of God here is seen. For he could just as easily smite these people who offend him, who rise up against him. And yet, even after he laughs, jokingly, realizing the littleness of their approach to him, he actually then, in a grace-filled way, speaks to them. He warns them. He warns them of the judgment for sin here in his response. And what does he say? In verse 6, he says this, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill, Notice he doesn't try to argue with them. He just simply says, matter of fact, I've already dealt with your sin. I've already done it. I've already set my son as the king 
over the earth, the king who reigns from Zion over all the earth, my holy hill. The psalm then is messianic by nature. It speaks concerning Christ Jesus, the son of God, in essence by, by name. It might not say Jesus, but it speaks of the anointed one, the Messiah who was at that time to come 3,000 years ago, and who in fact did come in the flesh. <clears throat> but it speaks not only of the coming of the Son to redeem his people from their sins, but it speaks of the anointing of the Son before the eyes of all the peoples. Few psalms stand in line with this messianic psalm. A few other messianic songs are those such as Psalm 22 and 45 and 72 and 110. But this psalm, Psalm 2, seems to speak of the Messiah, the anointed one, with such boldness and accuracy that seems to just stand apart from the rest of those messianic psalms. For in Psalm 2, we not only see a recognition of Christ as the king, but we also see a foretaste of his exaltation to the right hand of God the Father and the triumph and the reign over all of his and our enemies, implicit here in our text. God the Father in Psalm 2 verse 6 says this again, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And again, he leaves no room for question. No room for a well-but kind of response. See, what God purposed to do in the fullness of time, he did. Redemption by Christ was accomplished upon the cross. And the humiliation that he suffered once for all time for our sake, for our sins, was in fact completed. And so friends, in this truth, we have hope. Christ is no longer the suffering servant. As we were observing Good Friday just a week and some change ago, we saw him in his agony, the agonies of Calvary. And yet here, as predicted and foretold in Psalm 2, <clears throat> we see the king risen and ruling and reigning. So though humbled for our sake, he is now exalted. He is exalted forever, as we were singing earlier. And he is therefore Lord over all. So this church brings us to our second and last point for the morning. For this is where our hope is found in these following verses, 7 through 12. Here in this passage, we recognize that the Lord Jesus himself is the one who invites each one of us, we who have ears to hear, to take refuge in him, to be his heritage and his possession. And so we see here in Psalm 2, not just a recognition of the king there in the first six verses, but here in these last six verses, we see this call to each one of us, this invitation of the gospel message to come to Christ and to take refuge in him. Now Jesus, who is the singer of the Psalms, as the church father Augustine once called him, says the following to us right here in verses seven through nine. This is our Lord who is speaking. 
And he says this with all authority as the resurrection and the life. He says these words. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Friends, do you hear these as Jesus' words to you from Psalm 2? These are his words to us. And they are packed with meaning. See, the decree of which Jesus speaks, this decree that the Lord God, the Father, said to the Son, happened before the foundation of the world. This decree was set forth in motion before the actual dawn of time in what theologians call the covenant of redemption. This decree that the Son would come in time to save a people for himself. And I love the way that our confession, the Westminster Confession of Faith, puts it. It puts it so eloquently. And it says this, It pleased God in his eternal purpose to choose and to ordain the Lord Jesus, his only begotten Son, to be the mediator between God and man, the prophet, the priest, the king, the head, and the savior of his church, the heir of all things and the judge of the world, unto whom he did from all eternity, and this is hope, give a people to be his seed and to be by him in time redeemed, called, justified, sanctified, and glorified. Praise be to God. And so this is the exact decree of which Christ is speaking of here in Psalm 2, 7 through 9. It's a decree that, again, took place before the formation and foundation of the world with, and catch this, with you in mind, his people. It was a decree that was also made known to God's people even during Jesus' earthly ministry. For instance, in the gospel accounts of Christ's baptism, when we know that the Spirit descended upon Christ as the water was poured or sprinkled over him, as the Spirit and then the Father testified as well, saying, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. We see the decree in effect and in motion. And in the transfiguration of Christ before his disciples, the Father said again, regarding him before Peter and James and John, this is my beloved son, listen to him. This decree is worth reveling in and taking note of. But furthermore, even in the gospel accounts, this decree is made known at the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So we see him in the gospels as he's exalted in his glorified body and revealed to be the one who has already and yet still will inherit the nations at the end of time. The ends of the earth are already his possession, though we do not yet see it fully here realized. And as such then, to quote uh, the Dutch Reformed uh, theologian Abraham Kuyper, 
There is not now a single square inch in the whole domain of human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not say, mine, mine. What was once prophesied of Christ in Psalm 2, verse 6, is now established, for he is the king on the throne. And he does now rule and reign presently over the nations, though we do not yet see it in full effect. However, in light of these things, the kingdom of Christ continues to expand, spiritually speaking, to the ends of the earth. And as the church is on mission, as we will see starting next week in the book of Acts, as the church lives on mission, and she proclaims the risen Christ to the ends of the earth, faithfully proclaiming such, he will, in fact, as he has already done, make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. For he is not simply king in a providential sense, ruling and reigning over the nations, having foreordained whatsoever comes to pass, but rather he is ruling and reigning even spiritually over his church and through the church's functions. He is now ruling as our shepherd and our king. And at the last, all of his enemies and ours will bow to him in recognition. But, and hear this gospel truth, blessed are all who take refuge in him now. This is why in Psalm 2, verse 8, the father says to the son, ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Friends, as followers of Jesus Christ, the one who saves sinners, and by virtue of our being in him, this is a call for each one of us as disciples of Jesus to proclaim him to the ends of the earth within our communities and within the gift sets and the abilities that God has given us in our conversations and how we treat other people in our community through our words and our actions, showcasing the love of Christ toward them in the gospel of grace. For all authority in heaven and earth, as I've been stressing so far, has already been given to Jesus. And so as we go forth, we go forth in that authority. And therefore, as members of Christ's church, we in confidence can go and make disciples of Jesus. But note this, please, that this great commission which I alluded to earlier from Matthew 28 is not an individual um, endeavor. This is something that Christ himself gave to the church as a whole. He didn't give it to simply individuals. You know, you so-and-so go and make a disciple, though it is implicit there. He commanded the 11 apostles whom he commissioned and sent out. Those who were serving as the foundation of the church, which we will see again in Acts, of which Christ himself is the cornerstone, the one who holds the entire edifice of the church of God together. As the apostles went out, and as we as the church to this day continue the work of ministry which he has given to us, 
That is how disciples are made. And so we must be about this work, again, not as pure individuals, but as a community. This is a mission for us as a church. And this is why we here at Christ Covenant and within our own denomination, the PCA, emphasize the primary things of importance as we are about the advancement of the gospel message. We emphasize such things as the word preached and the sacraments rightly administered and discipleship and discipline to be had in the best and most holistic way possible. Because it's through these things that Christ who is king continues to shepherd and reign and rule through his church spiritually. And it's in these ways that he protects us and promotes the growth of the church. For evangelism and discipleship happen within the context of the local church. The local church when she is joined together under the headship of Christ. So again, friends, I want to stress the point that we cannot do this and obey the command that Christ is Lord and he is meant to be proclaimed without banding together. For friends, we are people who are members one of another. We are people who have to be committed to the gospel of Jesus, again, not as individuals, but as members of this family, the family of God. So the question for us is how will we do this? Of course, I look forward to answering that more and more in time. And as a quick plug even, our community group tonight will be going over this exact thing. <laughs> so I look forward to discussing in detail how these things look and work and sharing those thoughts with you and hearing your thoughts as well. But I do feel inclined to give us a word of warning before we bring this to a close. For as encouraging as this is, that we are members one of another, we are currently living in a certain age in our American history, a nation that we love, in which the church of Christ, the broad evangelical church, has seemed to lose its sight of what real membership of the body of Christ looks like. Especially during this time of COVID where people feel like they need to, out of their own safety, for good reasons or maybe not, stay home. Many people in this season are neglecting to assemble themselves. And of course, we understand that there are certain circumstances that may keep us from gathering the way that we all want to. But the real question is, what is the heart behind that? Are we people who, in spite of the circumstances, in spite of the risks associated with meeting, will incur those and nevertheless continue to meet and so prioritize the church above our own welfare? But we are living in an age where there will be, and there already has been, more persecution against the church. We've faced it over the past couple years, um, and we will continue to face it in an increasing degree. And so we have to decide this day, my friends, whom we will serve, Christ as Lord or Caesar, quote unquote, as Lord. Will we bow the knee ultimately to people in positions of authority when they oppose the risen Christ? Or will we bow the knee to Christ 
who is ruling and reigning and who loves to see our obedience and even blesses such obedience in the midst of adversity. For friends, we are, again, as we'll talk about tonight at the group, a needy people, but we are also a people who are needed. The church needs you. We, as the body of Christ, need you. And so we need to lean upon one another. If we desire Christ to bless our church here at Christ's covenant, we must commit ourselves to the ordinary means of grace that he has provided to us. The word, the sacraments, the fellowship of the saints, and the prayers as we worship God rightly. Now, as we begin our series on Acts uh, next week and continuing on going through the book, uh, which is, of course, a long book, and so we'll break it up a little bit uh, here and there, we will see the exercise of all of these things in the life of the church. How the church, from the beginning, refused to forsake the assembling of themselves. They refused to forsake these ordinary means of grace. And we'll unpack what that means in our daily lives. Even in the midst of persecution, though, there in the book of Acts, of ungodly authorities who commanded the church to stop gathering, to stop worshiping Christ as Lord, the disciples there, as we will see going forward, did not and could not neglect to recognize Christ as king. And, better yet, to take refuge in him. They chose to do that rather than taking quote-unquote refuge in the decrees of earthly kings and authorities, those who even opposed the work of God. For our King Jesus reigns upon a higher throne than theirs. And so friends, as we conclude, will we choose to submit to Christ's kingship in all things? As those who have been reconciled with the Father by the Son's atoning death for our sins, as those who have kissed the Son, who have been reconciled to him and paid homage to him, will we commit ourselves this day to never give up the assembling and the priority of assembling ourselves with each other? To be about the continued mission and work of the church of Christ across the globe, but especially in our own context here. And as a brief way of even saying thank you, I know that you all are doing this. So I hope that you are encouraged by this. That as we continue to promote this, that we will recognize that we are acting in obedience. And I just pray that we will continue to recognize this and prioritize this as new folks come in to our church and join us in the worship of our King. For to live without Christ as the King, as we know, is to perish. But, as we know, to take refuge in our King is truly life and peace. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are the one who is overall ruling and reigning. And we know that as your word goes forth, it speaks with boldness and it speaks wisdom into our lives. 
We often feel the tug within our own souls to neglect the commands that you've given us. And yet we thank you that wisdom yet calls aloud in the streets, saying and crying out to us to come and to eat, to buy without money or price, true life. And so we ask that we would heed your wisdom in this place, that as we have heard the word of God proclaimed and delivered to us, would you use this time to stir within our hearts a greater and deeper affection for the things of Christ. And so we pray all this in his name. Amen.